Son of a bitch, I am back in the studio, and when I tell you this feels good, it is the understatement of the century. Nobody has felt better than I feel right now being back in the studio. This feels phenomenal. When things go astray, um, I lose my mind. I'm a very schedule-oriented person. I'm a very um, temperamentally conservative person. I'm a very orderly person. So when I can't go through my routine, I slowly but surely start seething inside. And so I've been seething inside for the past few days. Um, and now I'm back. Now I'm back, baby. Back in the studio right where I belong. God, it feels good. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff to get to today. I have a full show for you. Um, you know, we're working on still working on some things behind the scenes here I'm kind of excited about. You guys know I'm not a big fan of YouTube bells and whistles, but I am a fan of uh, doing at least what I have to do in order to keep the content fresh and relevant. So um, trying to unveil some new stuff relatively soon, working on it. We'll see what happens. We'll see how it unfolds. Again, I'm pretty excited about that. So... I think I'm going to start by talking about this issue of platforming because I've been thinking about it a lot in regards to criticism. And I got a lot of criticism and got a lot of support over the last Crystal Kyle and Friends episode. I'm going to go ahead and dive into a topic that um, deserves to be fleshed out. So we're not even going to really start with a news story as much as we're going to start with a conversation on the issue of platforming. Um, I will get to plenty of news stuff, though. You got Bill Maher. Um, you got... He, he talked about Israel, so of course it was the worst thing you've ever heard in your life. We have um, Joe Biden goes right back to being creepy Joe Biden. The January 6th commission story, we got 
Uh, Bernie face-planted trying to pitch Biden. Roger Stone predicts Trump being criminally indicted. And i got a million things from cable news that we have to talk about. I mean, basically the second half of the show is all cable news stuff. Um, it is, it, this stuff is wild. So, again, I'm excited. Without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And um, we're going to do that with a conversation on the issue of platforming. I'll go to Bill Maher second, but let's do it. Okay. So this week on Crystal Kyle and Friends, we had Vosh on the podcast, and um, the response was interesting. Everybody knows that I try my best to avoid uh, reading reactions because it's so easy to go insane when you know that it's impossible to please everybody because two people can watch the same thing and have polar opposite reactions. So, you know, it's best to just do whatever you think is best and see where the chips fall. But I wanted to uh, dive into this conversation, which I think is an important conversation, which is some of the criticism that we got over this podcast. Now, again, plenty of people didn't criticize it. They thought it was wonderful. They thought it was lovely. And, um, but there were also plenty who did criticize it. Now, the, of course, the main critique is, how dare you platform him? Now, there's a lot of reasons that they give why they think he shouldn't be platformed, and I will say that most of the points that were made from people who were making that argument, I think were beyond absurd. I think they were obvious smears. I think they are, you know, they're little five-second clips that are completely taken out of context. Um, and so I think that a lot of people who were making the argument were just coming from a place of like, I don't like this person, and I'm working backwards from that conclusion. Um, and so how dare you do X, Y, and Z that I don't want you to do. So um, let's get into a a little bit behind the thought process of why um, I wanted him on. I mean, the reason I wanted him on was very simple. I found his commentary interesting. I even found his critiques interesting. And I think he's an honest person. And when you have a dialogue with an honest person, it's a lot easier to come to um, a mutual understanding. So on that alone, I felt it was worthy of having a conversation with Vosh. And um, listen, I think the podcast went well. He thinks the podcast went well. He talked about it after the fact. Um, Now, when people bring up that criticism, the criticism of how dare you platform X, Y, or Z, my old response to it used to be, don't, like, just shut up because I'll talk to anybody. That was basically my reaction. Like, who are you to micromanage my decisions? I'm going to talk to anybody. Now, upon reflecting on that, I realized that's not exactly true because I don't really want to talk to somebody who, for example, is pro-genocide. So it's not that I'll talk to anybody. To be clear, of course, Vosh is not pro-genocide. That that would be ridiculous. Um, I'm just trying to explain to you guys my thought process and, and where I'm at now on this issue of platforming somebody. So... I realize my position is not that I'll talk to anybody. Um, Now, if others say, hey, I'll talk to anybody, I would say that's totally fine. That's their decision. They can talk to whoever they want, even somebody who is pro-genocide. But I'll say this, you need to make sure you ask the right questions. If you talk to somebody who has some hideous, odious, terrible views, and you don't push them 
on the things that are hideous, odious, terrible views, well, then I do have an issue with it myself. And I'll say it's, it's irresponsible to platform person X, Y, or Z if you're not pushing back on these certain beliefs that they have where you need to push back on it. So I personally wouldn't talk to anybody. I do have lines. I do have standards. But I would defend somebody who talks to literally anybody as long as they're asking the right questions. So that gets into, um, you know, the broader topic of what's the criteria to talk to somebody for me. And for me, again, it's very simple. All I need to see is that they're intellectually honest. So as long as in my estimation they're intellectually honest and I find them interesting, then I want to talk to them. Now, that's where we get, you know, that's where everybody gets sort of stuck, I think, because somebody who I might think is intellectually honest, you might not think is intellectually honest. Somebody who I might think is interesting, you might not think is interesting. And to that, I respond, I don't give a fuck about your criticism because it's Crystal's show and my show, and I'm going to make those judgment calls as best as I can. Now, again, you might totally disagree with my judgment call on that. Don't care. <laughs> Couldn't care in the, in the least. In the same way, if you have a show and you talk to somebody on your show who, in my estimation, isn't intellectually honest or interesting, doesn't matter that I don't find them intellectually honest or interesting. It's not my show. It's your show, and you do find them intellectually honest or interesting. So you go right ahead and talk to them and ask, you know, whatever questions you want to ask. Now, again, I will criticize if I think you have somebody on who needs to be pushed on certain things and you don't push them on certain things. But to come full circle to the conversation with Bosch, if you think we didn't ask the questions that, that we should have asked, you're just wrong. Because we talked about his story, how he came up, what I found interesting on that front. But then we also got to almost every single area where we disagreed. We had a handful that we didn't get to, but those were more ancillary issues. So in other words, we talked about the issue of Bernie or Bust, where we have some disagreement. We talked about the issue of the populist right, where we have some disagreement. We talked about the issue of force to vote. So I have somebody on who I think is honest and who I think is interesting and we talk about where we agree and where we disagree. So I guess the argument that I would make to people who would criticize Crystal and I having Vashon is very simple. Um, do yourself a favor and actually listen to the thing you're criticizing before you criticize it. Now, if you listen to it and you still want to criticize me, okay, go right ahead. But suffice to say, I don't think it's reasonable criticism. Because he meets the criteria. He meets the standards. I think he's honest and I think he's interesting. So on that alone, I was willing to have him on, willing to talk to him, willing to hear him out, and add on to that the fact that I think we did an incredibly responsible interview in, in the sense that we talked about everything where I felt compelled like we had to talk about it. We talked about the areas where we disagree and fleshed it out. So I think that any reasonable person who watches the interview is going to walk away saying, well, that was fascinating. They talked about the areas where they agree. They talked about the areas where they disagree. They tried to come to some sort of mutual understanding. And beyond that, I think you're out of your mind if you think the left is ever going to win anything ever if two people or three people who agree as much as me, Vosh, and Crystal can't get along. I need you to stop and really reflect on that point for a second. Myself, Crystal Ball, and Vosh, if you sit down and write out in a very bullet point fashion our beliefs, on the, on the various policy issues. How much is there agreement between us? 90%? 95%? It, 
If you think it's possible for the left to ever win anything without people who agree as much as we do getting along, I think you're an insane person. And so, unfortunately, what's happened a lot on um, the online left is that everybody's become a petty fucking reality star with, with, you know, the most snowflake feelings ever. And, like, anybody criticizes somebody and they go nuclear ASAP. Everybody goes nuclear. Everybody goes hyperbolic. Everybody goes over the top. The person they're criticizing is the worst person in the world by far and away. It is the most childish shit I've ever seen. And almost everybody's guilty of it. So... There's no way you're ever going to build a, you know, a left-wing project or have left-wing unity or have left-wing victories if you can't get people who nominally agree as much as us three agree to sit down and have a conversation and iron things out. Now, listen, at the end of the day, are there still areas where we disagree? Sure. That doesn't matter. Who cares? <laughs> like, you have the conversation. You talk it out. You act like adults. You don't act like petty reality stars with fragile egos. And at the end of the day, everybody's better off for it. And then you know, the final point I'll make is, if you don't want to watch it, don't watch it. Like, that, like, instead of sitting there doing your little bullshit criticism, just don't watch it if you don't want to watch it. Oh, this is not for me because I hate that person. I hate Kyle or I hate Bosch or I hate Chris or whatever. Okay, nobody's fucking is holding you captive and telling you to watch it. Don't fucking watch it. I can't imagine where somebody's at mentally to, like, sit there and type out angry messages over something. I don't like the person in this, so I'm going to say this, 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 and this, and this. Nobody fucking cares. Nobody cares. You don't like it, don't watch it. That's, that's the end of it. And also, it is hilariously ironic. I really do think that anybody who makes the criticism that you can't talk to person X, Y, or Z, don't turn around and then pretend like you're pro-free speech or you're in favor of open discourse. Again, it's fine to be specific in criticisms. If somebody talks to somebody who's pro-genocide and they don't push them on the pro-genocide position, I'm going to criticize the fuck out of them and be like, that's irresponsible. But you can't say the conversation I had with Bosch is irresponsible. When we ironed out all the areas where we disagree, we had those conversations. We went into every nook and cranny of, you know, of, of nuanced discourse on the areas where we have nominal disagreement. So you can't say it's irresponsible. Don't pretend like you're in favor of free speech and you're in favor of open discourse and dialogue. If you look at a conversation with Crystal, Kyle, and Bosch, and you think, like, that conversation shouldn't have existed, it shouldn't have happened. So, and, and I want to be clear about something. I'm getting ahead of this stuff right now. There are going to be plenty of you who don't like a lot of the guests who are coming up on Crystal Kyle and Friends. Save it. I don't give a fuck if you don't like them. I don't care. Because, again, my criteria is this. Do I think they're honest? Do I think they're interesting? If it's yes and yes to those two things, I'm having them on. That's it. That's the end of it. That's it. You might disagree. Doesn't matter. My judgment is the opposite. Okay, so I don't want to hear it. There's going to come a time where we have Jimmy Dore on. A lot of people fucking hate that guy. A lot of people fucking love that guy, but a lot of people fucking hate that guy. Save your shitty fucking criticism. Do yourself a favor and either don't watch it, or if you do watch it, I think you'll walk away saying that was a good interview. Am I going to talk to him the areas where we agree? Sure. Am I also going to talk about where Jimmy and I disagree? You bet your ass I am. There's nothing that we've done to this point which should lead you to believe I'm not going to be an open book in every conversation. And same with Crystal. So we're going to look at what we did with Andrew Yang. We held him accountable on the issue of Israel, Palestine, and BDS. What makes you think I'm not going to ask important questions that need to be asked to whoever I have on the podcast? Of course I'm going to do that. So I want you to understand something. Some of you are going to be upset with a lot of the guests upcoming. I don't care. Probably going to talk to Jimmy Dore. Probably going to talk to Jank Uger. I know everybody's, you know, 
everybody in, in, in the lefty space is, is now, and I'm talking also about the audience, everybody has, has a fragile ego and nobody wants to talk to anybody else and everybody wants to launch smears and vicious attacks and character attacks and attack motivations and all that stuff. If you can't even have a conversation with those who you have an issue with, when nominally you agree on 80 or 90% or 95% of stuff, I think that's the most childish thing in the world. So there's going to be plenty of people who you guys have criticisms of that we're talking to. I don't know what to tell you other than if it really hurts your feelings that much and you hate it that much, then don't watch it. But anybody who does give it a chance and does watch it, even if they're iffy on the idea of having the person on in the first place, I think they'll walk away going, you know what? That was good because the questions that needed to be asked were asked. So I just wanted to go ahead and get this out there and talk about this issue of platforming, you know, criticizing somebody for platforming them. By the way, another criticism might be you don't have enough or any right-wingers on. So what's up with that? Again, my criteria is I have to think you're honest and I have to think you're interesting. There's just not that many on the right do I find honest and or interesting. Um, You know, I could see myself talking to like a Rand Paul type person, um, or excuse me, not Rand, Ron Paul type person. I think he's honest and interesting, even though I massively disagree with him on like 50% of stuff. Everything when it comes to the economy, I disagree with him on. It's possible I could see myself talking to somebody like that. Um, It's possible I could see myself talking to some other person on the right who I think is honest or interesting, as few as there are. Like Sagar is another example. Stay tuned, by the way because we have a little surprise for you tomorrow morning that you might want to see. So, yeah, I don't have, there are no hard, fast rules other than this basic idea that for Crystal and myself, if we find you, if we think you're honest and if we think you're interesting, we'll have you on the podcast. Um, So that's my criteria. You know, it's not the idea that I will literally talk to anybody because I won't. There are plenty of people who I just don't think are honest or don't think are interesting, so they're not coming on the podcast. But I guarantee you when I do have people on who I find honest and or interesting, I will dive into the areas where we agree and where we disagree. And then you guys can determine whether or not you like it from then on out. But, um, yeah, I found a lot, of the, a lot of the rhetoric around this interview was really fucking pathetic, not going to lie. The criticisms, I mean, because you could tell that almost everybody who was criticizing on, from the platforming angle didn't even watch it, didn't even watch it, because if they did, they would have said, oh, okay, well, they had an open discourse, not only on how, how they agreed, but then also they got into how they disagreed, and so aired it out for everybody to see, and then also, I just think it's a good thing when, when you do have a nominal ally who you agree with between 80 and 95% who you at least can talk to. Hilarious when anybody thinks that you'll be anything other than an irrelevant subculture if you have nothing but cruise missiles to launch at the faces of people who you agree with that much. I mean, it's just, I mean, this is obvious. This is politics 101 stuff, you know? And um, it's funny what's happened to the online left, how everybody's just so at each other's throats all the time. The only time you've seen unity recently is probably when Andrew Yang was defending the Israeli war crimes and the entire left all got on the same page. Last time we had unity before that was the Bernie Sanders campaign, you know? So 
Um, it, it's good to get back to a place where you can have that kind of unity while also not abandoning your principles and being honest with each other 100% of the time. And that's really part of the goal of what we're doing. So anyway, that's what I have to say about the platforming criticism. I really think it's a bullshit criticism. I do. I really think it's a bullshit criticism. I think if you believe in free speech, if you believe in open discourse, then really the only time you should criticize somebody for platforming somebody is if they have on somebody who doesn't get pushed on important topics where they need to be pushed. And obviously I think that everybody we have on, if there's an area that merits pushing them hard on a topic, we push them hard on that topic. There's an area where it means fleshing out a disagreement, we flesh out that disagreement. So it is what it is. Um, I guess criticize away if you want to criticize away, but there's an easy solution if you're really that offended by it. Don't watch it. But if you do watch it, my guess is 99% of you will walk away going, that was good. And that, was, that hit everything that I wanted it to hit. So anyway, um, that's what I have to say about that. And people should have better stuff to do with their time than policing who other people decide to have dialogue with. Okay, next. All right, let's talk about Bill Maher. So Bill Maher was out from his show a couple weeks ago uh, because apparently he got COVID. Um, he seems to have recovered, so he did his show last week. And naturally, he took the horrendously wrong position on Israel-Palestine, as he has done over the years. So Fox News is reporting on this here. They say that real-time host Bill Maher weighed in on the Israel-Gaza conflict Friday night after canceling last week's show following his positive coronavirus test result. He quickly took issue with the liberal media for its coverage of the fighting. Quote, one of the frustrations I had while I was off is that I was watching this war go on in Israel. By the way, hilarious he refers to it as a war. It's a war. A war. Between a side with children and rocks and a side with one of the most powerful militaries on the planet, backed by the most powerful military on the planet. He continues, and it was frustrating to me because there was no one on liberal media to defend Israel. Marr began the panel discussion. Yeah, that's the problem in U.S. media. Nobody defends Israel ever. Now, to be fair, there, there was more pro-Palestine commentary than I've ever seen previously. But that's a low bar to clear, son. Because uh, with previous slaughter fests from Netanyahu, like Protective Edge in 2014, it was wall-to-wall pro-Israeli coverage, no matter what they were doing. So we had a little bit of pushback now, and all of a sudden, oh, my God, nobody's defending Israel at all. Yes, poor Israel. They're such a victim with their $4 billion a year they get from the United States and their colossally powerful military and their endless apartheid. Okay, anyway, I digress. Um, quote, we've become this country now that we're kind of one-sided on this issue. And I'd also like to say off the bat, I don't think kids understand. And when I say kids, I mean the younger generations. You can't learn history from Instagram, the 65-year-old Mar added. There's just not enough space. I love this. It's so smug. It's so condescending. It's so wrong. 
oh, you stupid young people, obviously you're getting your history from Instagram and you can't learn history from Instagram. So in other words, this argument is, it's a, it's a complicated and complex you know, um, situation over there in the Middle East. You don't know the truth unless and until somebody talks at you for an hour and a half and gives you all the Hasbara talking points under the sun. And then after all that, you understand no matter what, Israel's the victim. I mean, he's just, he's so smug, he's so condescending. Did you know he doesn't like having any people who became famous on the internet on his show? He, he looks down on anybody from the internet, on anybody. He is stuck in a previous generation. By the way, he was also kind of anti-internet back when he was on the show Politically Incorrect and the internet was just becoming a thing. He was like, oh, this is a fad, this is going to die out, this is silly. Shows you, you know how good his analytical skills are from time to time. Um, the host clashed with New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof, who suggested that Israel had committed possible war crimes against Gaza. You don't say, quote, well, Gaza fired 4,000 rockets into Israel. What would you say Israel should have done instead of what they did, Marr asked. Allow me to answer that, Bill. Have something called Iron Dome, which knocks 90% of those rockets straight out of the air. Oh, that's right, they had the Iron Dome, and they did knock 90% of the rockets straight out of the air. So whenever anybody says, oh, Israel has a right to defend itself, Israel has a right to defend itself, Israel has a right to defend itself, you say, they have Iron Dome. That is the definition of defending themselves. They knock 90% of the rockets right out of the sky. So any bombing that goes on, specifically of civilian infrastructure in Gaza, is a war crime is a war crime. No matter what Israel bombs, they have the same response. Oh, something, something Hamas was in there, something. Really? It was a school. Something, something Hamas, hiding rockets, whatever. You bombed the only power plant in Gaza. Something, something Hamas, rockets, whatever. You bombed, you know, 30 different areas of media infrastructure. Something, something Hamas, something. Get off our ass. You bomb the roads on the way to, to the hospital. Something, something, what are you going to do, Hamas? You bomb the Doctors Without Borders clinic. That's something, something, Hamas, something, something. So no matter what they bomb, no matter how many civilians they kill, Hamas. Hamas. Hamas, Hamas, Hamas. Well, what about in 2014, Operation Protective Edge, where, according to the UN, 80% of the dead were civilians. There were 500 children who were killed. Something, something, Hamas, but 80% of the time, you didn't get Hamas. But he's still, oh, but they fired 4,000 rockets into Israel. Let me ask Bill a question. He loves Israel's right to defend itself. Do Palestinians have a right to defend themselves? Do Palestinians have a right to defend themselves? I would love to ask Bill Maher that question. Do they? Do they? And then if he says yes to that, which he won't, but if he did, okay, well, then is it not defending yourself if they're trying to evict you from your home in East Jerusalem where you've been for decades? Somebody comes in and illegally tries to kick you out of your own house. Illegal under international law. Is it self-defense to use violence in that scenario? I know that if you flip the roles and it was Israel in that situation, he would say you have a right to use violence in that scenario. But a Palestinian do it as terrorism. God, he's such a hack. Quote, I mean, international lawyers are pretty clear that they have a right to defend themselves. But there is a sense that their response was probably a war crime because they did not specifically avoid, sufficiently avoid civilian casualties, Christoph responded. That's true, but it's also too weak from Kristoff. He's not really making the counter-argument strongly enough. 
Quote, but they purposely put the rockets in civilian places, Mar fired back. That's their strategy. Yes, of course. No matter what, even when 80% civilians die in Gaza, even when 500 children die, this time around 60 children died, even when that happens, it's always the fault of Hamas. Even if we kill 99% civilians, if the Israeli side kills 99% civilians, blame Hamas. Funny, he always wants to take agency away from the Israeli government, always. Uh, the HBO star pushed back at the liberal narrative that Israel, quote, stole the land with terms like occupiers and apartheid being thrown around. <laughs> quote, doesn't it behoove the people who rejected the half, half a loaf and continue to attack? Hamas's charter says they just want to wipe out Israel. Let me pause on that. That was from the 1980s. Their more recent charters say, you know what? We'll take a two-state solution along the 1967 borders. Weird. They go all the way back to the charter from the 1980s and ignore the more recent ones. Funny, because it's almost like it's just propaganda. Their negotiation position is you all die, Mars said. The two-state solution has been on the table a number of times. Hilarious that he thinks Israel is serious about any sort of two-state solution. There could be an Arab capital in East Jerusalem now if Yasser Arafat had accepted that in 2003. He did not. The deal that was proposed a number of times was incredibly unfair, which is why it was rejected. It it, uh, factionalized the Palestinian territories massively. Um, It made it so that the water rights, the important natural resources, were purely in Israel. So there are very clear reasons why it was rejected. It was rejected because it was completely unfair. But he frames it as if it's like, no, they just want all the Jews to die, which is why they rejected it, and that's the end of the conversation. That is utter nonsense. Quote, I mean, they have rejected this and went to war time and time again. Yes, they have went to war time and time. I'm sure that um, Marr overlooking the fact that there is an illegal occupation under international law, I'm sure that's just an oopsie on Marr's part. Somehow there's not even the most tepid criticism of Israel, even though the United Nations, every single international court, and all international law is crystal clear, they continue to build illegal settlements. They continue to illegally occupy Palestinian territory in the West Bank. They also continue to control every single border in Gaza, and they allow, they control the flow of what goes in and what goes out. And they, for example, give them electricity only a tiny amount of the time each day. So this idea that, oh my God, Israel is such a victim and they're the only victim, beyond ridiculous. And then he says, as you know, as far as Gaza goes, it's amazing to me that the progressives think that they're being progressive by taking the side of it. The Bella Hadids of the world, these influencers. I just want to say in February of this year, a Hamas court ruled that an unmarried woman cannot travel in Gaza without the permission of a male guardian. Really? That's where the progressives are? Pause. Look at this bait and switch. Look at this complete red herring. Did any progressive say at any point in time, yes, I think that's a reasonable law. I think that unmarried women shouldn't travel in Gaza without the permission of a male guardian. Nobody fucking said that. This is the clearest straw man of all time. Total apples and oranges conversation. It is very easy to criticize that and also criticize illegal settlements. What are you doing? What are you doing? I, it, I mean, this is so disingenuous. This is such propaganda. By the way, and he'll, be, he'll criticize what's going on domestically in Palestinian territories. Has he ever criticized domestically what's going on in some of the uh, Israeli territory? Has he ever said, hey, those 50 laws that basically codify apartheid, I'm against that. Never said it. Never said it. Man, he's incredible. Um, 
that's where the progressives are. Bella Hadid and her friends would run to screaming to Tel Aviv if they had to live in Gaza for one day. Marr continued to blast the notion that Israel is a so-called apartheid, arguing it's far different from the actual apartheid of South Africa that was controlled by Britain and Holland who had no claim to the land. Quote, the Israelis, they have made mistakes, but it's an apartheid state because they keep getting attacked, Marr exclaimed. If they don't keep a tight lid on this shit, they get killed. That seems like something different. Oh, I love this part. This is my favorite part. It's my favorite part. And here's why. He starts by saying, it's ridiculous. This is not an apartheid state. Don't be silly. And then the argument flips to, okay, it's an apartheid state, but they have to do it. Total contradiction. He says, it's not an apartheid state. That's ridiculous. Okay, fine. It is an apartheid state, but they have to do it because if they don't, they'll get killed. He's a parody of himself. He's a parody of himself. There's not a single ridiculous pro-Israeli Hasbara Likud talking point that he doesn't swallow hook, line, and sinker. This is nonsense. And listen, keep it real. Probably the gist of why he feels the way he feels and why he talks about it the way he talks about it is because he does have a double standard when it comes to Muslims. He views everything when it comes to Muslims through the harshest light possible. He does. He does. He absolutely does. And this is just a great example of it. He thinks, well, these barbaric savages with their backward religion, they can't be, you can't trust them. Look at how religious they are. They're ridiculous. They're so backwards. By the way, you know who else is extremely religious? Uh, the illegal settlers. A lot of them think God gave them a claim to the land. A lot of them try to follow the Old Testament literally. Have you seen the way the ultra-Orthodox dress? Is that not a hint that maybe they're uber-religious and they take this stuff very seriously and literally? But funny, you know, there's the criticism only cuts in one direction, even though there are insanely religious extremists on both sides. But by the way, only one of the two sides is doing the illegal occupation and is violating international law every single day and is doing apartheid. Apartheid, which he admits that they're doing now, but he says, it's a good thing. They're not doing apartheid. Don't be ridiculous. Okay, they're doing it, but it's a good thing. Bill Maher, what a hack. Complete and utter hack. He's been making the same tired, ridiculous talking points all the time on his show. And, um, I mean, listen, you go back. I remember covering this in 2014 with Operation Protective Edge. He didn't have a single criticism of the Israeli government when we learned in no uncertain terms that they were bombing, you know, civilian areas relentlessly, and we had 80% civilian deaths. And all he had was criticism of the Palestinians, had no criticisms of the Israeli government. So this is hack stuff, man, complete hack stuff. And he's ridiculous. And, I mean, I mean, this is one of those guys that it's like, I'm embarrassed that I ever liked him. Okay, next. So, um, the big issue now in D.C. is this January 6th commission. The Democrats want a January 6th commission to look into what happened. The Republicans don't want that. Um, They tried to get it through the Senate 
like a bipartisan commission. It failed even though the votes in favor were 54. By the way, that says quite a bit about the filibuster and the way the system works and how ridiculous it is that you need over 60 votes to get anything through regular order. So uh, here's CNN reporting on this January 6th commission. Take a look, and then we'll discuss it. Republicans just blocked a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th Capitol attack. Just six Republicans voted in favor of this effort to get the real answers on what happened on that dark day. Just six. Keep in mind, seven Republican senators voted to convict Donald Trump for inciting that insurrection, but apparently an even smaller number want to get answers about that attack on American democracy. Here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The Republican minority just prevented the American people from getting the full truth about January 6th. The Republican minority just prevented the Senate from even debating the bill. Shame on the Republican Party for trying to sweep the horrors of that day under the rug because they're afraid of Donald Trump. Let's get you right to the Hill with CNN's Ryan Noble. Ryan, the final vote was 54 to 35. How is it that the 35 went? It, it does probably make a lot of people watching at home scratch their heads that the, the overwhelming majority of senators voted to move uh, this commission forward, but it's just not enough. And that's the way the United States Senate works, because it requires a supermajority if the minority party intends to filibuster something. And that's exactly what we saw here today, the, this vote falling short, only 54 of voting yes. And it did include a collection of Republicans, six Republicans, uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska voting yes, Susan Collins of Maine, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Ben Sass of Nebraska, Mitt Romney uh, of Utah, and Rob Portman uh, of Ohio. Uh, now, there was another senator, Pat Toomey, uh, from, uh, from Pennsylvania, I should say, uh, who was not here today. Uh, he was among a collection of Republicans that just didn't vote at all. Now, Toomey did release a statement uh, this uh, afternoon saying that he would have voted yes had he been in attendance, but he had a family commitment, but pointing out that had he been here, it wouldn't have mattered, because this collection of Republicans that we're showing you here uh, that were not here to vote uh, would have, uh, aside from Toomey, all voted no, and it would have required 10 Republicans to push the bill forward. So, Anna, there is a lot of frustration among Democrats right now, uh, some suggesting that this is another example of why they need to blow up the filibuster, because it's just so difficult to get anything accomplished. And this was something that just a couple of weeks ago, Anna, both Republicans and Democrats were calling for. Uh, Democrats made a number of concessions to Republicans uh, to get them on board. It just wasn't enough. So what do you think this means, Ryan, for those six Republicans who voted in favor of the commission? Is this fight within the GOP over? You know, it's hard to forecast, Anna, because uh, among this group, you have uh, a number of Republicans that just won re-election, so they're not going to be in a position where they're going to be forced uh, to face voters in the near future. There's also some uh, that have just decided uh, not to run for re-election, so they're also not going to face the wrath uh, of Trump supporters in an election. But I, I want to just read for you a bit of what Bill Cassidy, the senator of Louisiana, said uh, after uh, this vote. He put out a statement, and he said, quote, the investigations will happen with or without Republicans. To ensure that investigations are fair, impartial, and uh, focused on the facts, 
Republicans need to be involved. And uh, this kind of gets to the point of what you're talking about here, Anna, that Republicans, uh, to a certain extent, are, are hurting themselves by not allowing this commission to go forward, because House Speaker Nancy Pelosi just put out a statement saying that Democrats are not giving up on this, that they are going to continue to seek the truth. Instead of this being an independent bipartisan commission, we're now likely looking at a, at a partisan commission run by Democrats where they'll get to call the shot. And so therefore, that's going to mean a good portion of Americans are going to question the final outcome. That's unfortunate. Ryan Noble, thank you for your reporting. There's a lot to say about this. The first point is, I believe there was a poll that showed a majority of Republicans actually blame Antifa for the January 6th attempted insurrection slash riot. So in other words, they say, couldn't have been us that, that did that. We back the blue. So we wouldn't do a riot or we wouldn't do an attempted insurrection and we wouldn't be aggressive against the officers who were you know, uh, protecting the area and were doing security. It had to be Antifa. So on the one hand, a majority of Republicans say Antifa did the January 6th stuff. And then Republican lawmakers turn around and say, no, 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 don't investigate this. Definitely don't investigate this. Okay, so, but you guys hate Antifa. You definitely would investigate it if you really thought it was Antifa. You know it's not Antifa. Of course it's not Antifa. So, I mean, that contradiction really says everything. It's just, it's whatever... Whatever is convenient in that exact moment, hypocrisy be damned, logic be damned, that's what the Republicans are going to do. So I, I think that's probably the most important point here, is just how full of shit they are. Oh, uh, Antifa did it. That wasn't MAGA people. That wasn't QAnon people. That was Antifa people. Oh, really? Let's investigate the Antifa people. No, no definitely, definitely don't do that. I, w- I wouldn't do that at all. Don't do that. Definitely not. If they really thought it was Antifa, they'd be like, yeah, investigate it right now. Of course they didn't do it. Anyway. Um, so that's probably the biggest point. Now, after that, listen, got a little bit of a hot take for y'all on this. I don't know how many of you are going to like this, but I got to give you the straight dope. I got to give you my real opinion on this. The reason why Democrats are doing this is simply because they want to run on this in the midterms, period. So in other words, if you focus on this and you talk about this and you do it nonstop and it's what the media covers and it's what you talk about This doesn't require Democrats to deliver on anything else substantively and policy-wise. Or so they think. They think, if we just talk about this all the time and we investigate this and we keep this front and center, people aren't even going to notice that we're not pushing for the substantive things that would improve their lives materially. That's what they think. That's what they think. Now, by the way, I think that calculation is wrong. I think if Democrats do focus on this as much as they want to, the midterms are going to be ugly. But that's the calculation that they've made. Hey, what's the path of least resistance? What's the easiest way for us to sort of, you know, run the clock out while we have control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency? We want to win in the midterms, but we don't want to do anything because it's too hard, and we don't really believe in the things we're pushing for. So let's just, I don't know, talk about Republicans bad, January 6th bad. Let's just suck all the air out of the room by only talking about that stuff. So... By the way, they admit this at the end, too, in this clip. Democrats don't even need the Republicans for this. I don't know why they're trying to create some sort of investigation through the Senate when you can have an investigation through the executive branch. Biden controls all of the federal agencies. If he wants an investigation, he can just do an investigation like that. You don't need any Republican support. So why would you try to do this, what you just did? 
because it's a show, because it's kabuki theater. And so now they get to spend a week out there wagging their finger and saying, oh, the Republicans didn't even want to look into the horrendous attack on our nation's capital. Isn't this so terrible? Isn't this so wrong? Isn't this so bad? Shouldn't we talk about this until the midterms and not talk about anything substantive that would improve your life? Yes. So if they want to do an investigation, just do the investigation. You don't need the whole, let's go through the Senate, let's vote on it, even though we don't have to vote on it. This is peak Democratic silliness. Um, Now, Biden's approval rate, just so you understand, has been slowly slipping. There was a time where it was 60%. Now it's all the way down to 54%. I submit to you the reason why is after the COVID relief package and the $1,400 checks, he peaked. Ever since then, it's been slowly falling because people are like, okay, now do the next materially good thing for me. And they haven't been doing any materially good things for you now. So, yes, that approval rating is going to keep falling because people's lives are going to get worse and worse. And this is how Democrats want to fill that gap and how they want to run. They want to focus on January 6th. Now, by the way, the final point, point, this is probably the most obvious point, is we know what the fuck happened. We know what ha- You don't need to study it. We know exactly what happened. The argument that Trump supporters, QAnon people, were drunk on Stop the Steal lies, were drunk on conspiracy theories, and they wound up storming the Capitol, being violent. Mike Pence had to run to save his life because they were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Mitt Romney barely got out of Dodge in time. All that stuff. We have, guys, we have it all on video. We've seen the, I've shown you the video from the Capitol riot. It is intense. It is scary. Now, the only area where I differ from the mainstream democratic narrative is very simple. This never had any chance of succeeding, and it didn't because there's nobody who's like a higher up in the Pentagon or some shit who's actually ready to press a button and do a coup where like the army or the police or whatever take over the White House and like, force Trump to remain president. So that's why I always, people came after me for calling it a diet coup. The reason why I called it a diet coup is simply because it was so disorganized and there were no real higher-ups who were connecting the dots and giving it a chance to work. So, I mean, I guess a better way to talk about it would be incompetent coup attempt or incompetent insurrection, or I think riot is fair enough, right? So, but, so never had any hope of working, but we know exactly what happened. This isn't like it's not it's not a mystery that we need to solve that we need to dig into. We know exactly what happened. And 90 percent of the Democratic arguments on what happened are exactly correct. You don't need to study. it. You don't need to look into it. You, like because because what's going to come out of some sort of commission that studies it here? I'll answer nothing. Nothing. They've already arrested a lot of the people who were involved in it. So what are you going to do the study for? We need to study it to get the people and bring them to justice. You already got the people and brought them to justice. So what's the point? Again, the point is culture war. That's the point. Hey, let's talk about this other thing, which has nothing to do with the $15 minimum wage, has nothing to do with whatever, fill in the blank with anything, a UBI check, a Medicare for all, public option, whatever. It has nothing to do with the substantive things that are going to improve your life. Let's only talk about this thing nonstop until the midterms, because it gets me off the hook from having to do anything, and it'll make it so that my base defends me, even though I'm not actually fighting for them or fighting for the American people. That's the whole point. So, you know, listen. Don't get it twisted. Theater matters in politics. But I would argue the kind of theater that matters the most is theater towards substantive ends. So it has to be, you could take on a fight that you know you're going to lose as long as the fight is inherently virtuous in and of itself and it would improve people's lives. This is not that. This isn't inherently virtuous and it's not going to improve anybody's life. 
The whole point of this is just the show, the show for show's sake, the show for the culture war's sake. So I think this is, I think we're wasting time here, and they're doing that on purpose because this is all they have. In the same way that all the Republicans have is the culture war. All they talk, oh, woke ideology, bad. Let's talk about that for fucking 24 hours a day. Same way that Republicans have that, now the Democrats are going full. January 6th, bad. Trump's still bad. Let's talk about this all day. Because nobody wants to actually fight for the materially improvement of your life. So that's where we are. That's where we are. And it's a damn shame, but it's an easy way to trick the media into only talking about this. An easy way to have the Democrats fill the room with noise without actually saying anything. And listen, at the end of the day, we know exactly what happened. It doesn't require further study. Now it's time to actually, if you want to do the investigation, do the investigation. But don't give me the bullshit, we got to go through the Senate. Just do the investigation on your own through a federal agency, and Biden has the ability to do that. So go ahead, do that investigation. I don't really care, but focus on the actual things that matter, improving people's lives and doing it right now, and they don't want to do it. Okay, next. All right, so here we go, y'all. Creepy Joe Biden is back. Handsy Uncle Joseph is back. Now, to be fair to him, this isn't actually him being handsy, but his comments here are definitely eyebrow-raising. So I don't actually know what this event was. It was some Memorial Day event. I know that much. Um, He's apparently referring to the kid of one of the people who was partaking in the event here. Get your face palm ready. Look at what Creepy Joe said this time. Joe, please stop. Joe, please. Anytime it comes to, like, some young woman in the room or some kid, he gets way too handsy. Now, listen, the defense of that is, like, he's just a loving grandpa doing loving grandpa stuff. I mean, he seems to do it with every little girl whenever they're in his vicinity. So don't know if I'm willing to be like, sure, that's fine. Especially because now he's been told about 40 times, like, hey, man, you've got to reel it in. This is not okay. Especially in the, the, like, the Me Too era where things are viewed through this particular lens of like, the immediate assumption is that it's nefarious. And he, he can't help himself. So, listen, at least this time it's not actual handiness, but, God, that was creepy. We're talking about this is a child he's talking to. I forget, I forget what the number, I read the article, I forget what the number was, was 12 or 13 years old, something like that. Man, I love those berets in your hair, man. Sitting there like a little lady with your legs crossed. Hmm. Joe. Joe, reel it in. Reel it in, man. And the other point, of course, is that he does appear half dead again. 
sometimes he does these public appearances. It's like he's half asleep. I think it's a good thing we're here in Virginia for Memorial Day. Love being up here with Dave and Rebecca and Greg. I love those berets in your hair, man. Look at you. Sitting there like a 19-year-old little lady with your legs crossed. Oh, why'd you say that, Joe? Joe, please stop. Please stop. He's half dead, and he's still saying creepiest sounding things of all time. So, listen, I'm just showing you this. Uh, the right pounced hard on this, of course. Of course. Um, but let's be clear why they pounce on it. They pounce on it because they got nothing else to talk about because they don't want to substantively improve anybody's life. I just want to be clear that it's not like there's some sort of super principled, you know, anti-sexual harassment types. I mean, look at Trump. He's got more accusations than we can count And he's been accused of everything under the sun. So it's not like they're principled on this front. They're just talking about this because they got nothing else to propose. Um, But, yeah, I'm talking about it because it goes right back to old school handsy Uncle Joseph stuff. And you guys know that was one of my favorite memes that we created out of the blue. My nickname for Joe Biden was handsy Uncle Joseph, and it's Joe Biden with colossal hands. And to this day, I still laugh at those pictures that many of you made for us when we came up with that nickname. And um, this definitely fits in with the Hansy Uncle Joseph theme, that's for sure. All right, next. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel bad for Bernie on this one. Bernie Sanders did a pro-Biden pitch with the release of his budget. And uh, it didn't end very well. So Jeff Stein says the following here. He's from Washington Post. Bernie Sanders puts out a statement saying he is delighted prescription drug reform and Medicare at 60 are in the White House budget. This appears to be incorrect. The White House calls in general terms for these policies, but they are not reflected in the budget itself. And you see right underneath that scoop, White House budget will not include key Biden campaign pledges such as the public option, prescription drug reform, or student debt relief per sources. White House squarely focused on $4 trillion in jobs, infrastructure plus families plan. Okay, now um, let me explain further what's going on here. You only get so many shots at reconciliation, very few shots at reconciliation. In fact, they already said they waved the white flag and said we're not going to do any reconciliation until August at the earliest. earliest. So they're basically saying we're doing nothing at least until August. Um, But since we have the system we have and regular order requires 60 votes, which is psychotic, You have to jam everything you actually want passed into a budget for a reconciliation bill. So the fact that he left out um, lowering prescription drug prices, the fact that he left out the public option, the fact that he left out student debt relief means something very simple. He doesn't want it. He doesn't care about it. It's not a priority for him, and we're not going to get it. That's what that means. So apparently they released some sort of, you know, general terms for these policies, for, for this budget, and in not the actual budget itself, but in the sheet describing what's in the budget, they say something along the lines of like, it'd be great to see Medicare at 60, it'd be great to see per, prescription uh, drug costs go down, it'd be great to see the public option, it'd be great to see student loan debt relief. And Bernie saw the fact sheet 
that said it would be great to have those things and assumed, hey, that's actually in the budget. When, when you actually read the budget, it's not in the budget. And so Bernie went out there and, and said, this is wonderful. Biden's in favor of lowering uh, Medicare age to 60, prescription drug reform, the public option, student loan debt relief. And Jeff Stein had to be like, Bernie, it's, that's, it's not actually in the budget. That's in the fact sheet thing that they put out, which you sort of fell for the diversion and didn't look at the actual budget. And so all those things that you think are in there that are wonderful policies, they're not in there. Oh, man, that hurts. Oh, man, and that is such classic Joe Biden shit. Classic. At every step of the way with Joe Biden, it gets watered down more and more and more. Every single step of the way. I mean, there are things he said on the campaign trail that were already the more conservative positions of the people who were in the primary. Um, And then he just watered it down more, watered it down more, watered it down more. And then at the end of the day now, we have this massively watered down bill, which again, doesn't include probably the best provisions. Like if that stuff was in there, it would be the best provisions. Medicare at 60, lowering prescription drug prices, student debt relief. Um, and there's one other that I'm blanking on at this moment, but public option, I say public option. So those would be the best policies. They're just left out. And Bernie fell for the head fake, which by the way, also is just quintessential Bernie Sanders, isn't it? Remember when he had that, when he endorsed Biden, he had that meeting with him and Joe, are there any policies you're in favor of that are like the policies I'm in favor of? Yes, Bernie, I love like the $15 minimum wage. I think is great. Okay, Joe, I support you because we got to get workers a $15 minimum wage. And then when the $15 minimum wage fight came around, Biden didn't fight for it. And even the Justice Democrats who said they would force the vote on that didn't force the vote on that either. So there's Bernie falling yet again for the complete head fake and then pushing the misinformation by accident uh, by saying like, oh, credit for him putting these things in the budget. Oh, shit, they're not in the budget. So, did, by the way, did he come out and say, like, correction, I was wrong, and now I'm going to criticize Biden for not putting it in there? Nope. Nope. Even the left flank, what's supposed to be the left flank, goes along to get along. And it's pathetic. You're never going to win anything at all if you don't fight for it. And they don't want to fight for it. They want to play team sports. And um, congrats. So now you're only as strong as your most conservative Democrat. That's the bottom line. And that's nowhere near the kind of change that we need at this moment. So honestly, this is embarrassing for everybody. This is embarrassing for Biden. This is embarrassing for Bernie. This, this just too perfectly sums up the current political era that we're in. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, Roger Stone predicts a Trump criminal indictment. That's pretty interesting. Stay right there, y'all.
We are back me. We are back bitch. Hello everybody. Welcome back to the show. Um Man, the Northeast the past like three or four days has been just horrendous. Been so bad in terms of the weather. It was like 80, 90 degrees the week before, and then it plummeted to 50 degrees, and it's been rainy and disgusting. It looks like the sun is finally trying to peak out now, but God, late May and a burst of like winterish weather is terrible. <clears throat> All right, so still plenty of stuff to get to. Still super happy to be back on air. Um, all right, let's talk about Roger Stone. Roger Stone, Trump's longtime buddy and partner in crime, probably quite literally, uh, he went on Alex Jones' show. I don't even know where Alex Jones is broadcasting a show these days because he's been banned from every outlet imaginable, and I don't even know if anybody would host his own website, but whatever, that's neither here nor there. He went on Alex Jones' show, and uh, he dropped a bomb on everybody. The globalists love symbolism, don't they? Well, I would be shocked if they uh, did not come forward uh, with a fabricated indictment for bank fraud or tax fraud against the former president uh, by Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance, an elected Democrat, the son of Cyrus Vance Sr., the worst Secretary of State in American history, the man who botched the Iranian hostage crisis under Jimmy Carter. By the way, uh, Cy Vance is not exactly a non-corrupt politician himself. I will be breaking a number of stories uh, at my new podcast, Get Stoned, uh, also at Band TV, uh, regarding uh, Cyrus Vance. He has a very interesting political history. Uh, If they want to go after the president on fabricated charges, then we will establish that this is a partisan witch hunt. In other words, as you said earlier, you show the man, I'll show you the crime. They're allowed to root through this man's business record of 40 years in which he built a real estate empire second to none, combing for a crime. They have no evidence of a crime. They have no probable cause. It, it is disgraceful, but I do think it is going to happen. And don't be surprised if the announcement comes at the exact time that we learn the truth about Maricopa County, Arizona. Don't be surprised, because I see that coming. Well, I'm told by people very close to it that, indeed, they intend to do it and that they're shooting for on or around July 4th to really rub it into our faces as a declaration of their takeover, the Chinese takeover of America. Uh, their real problem is you can already see that demand for recounts and reexamination of the irregularities and the anomalies in this election are bubbling up in Georgia, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, and other states. I love how insane that is. So they're so they're pushing QAnon stuff now. That's what that is. That's what you just saw. And they're arguing that, uh, look out, Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, they're all looking into what happened in the election, and it looks like Joe Biden stole the election, and we're going to have evidence of that. We're going to have proof over that. We're going to reverse the result. Donald Trump is still the real president. I mean, all these investigations going on, they're – they're, they're real serious. They're looking into all the right stuff. That's the argument that they're effectively making. And that is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. Guys, this has been thoroughly litigated. And every step of the way, Trump, they had like 60 court cases or something like that. 
And I think they lost every single one but one, and the one that they won was on some procedural nonsense. It's over, son. It's over. Biden's been president for a long time now. They're still doing the whole, like, the election. Look at Arizona and Georgia and Wisconsin and Michigan. There are still QAnon people who think Trump will come back as president. I'm not kidding. And I mean not even, like, run again in 2024 and win. I'm talking about, like, they'll remove Biden and put Trump in for this term. And that's what they're hinting at there. They're like, oh, uh, I, Trump is probably going to go down for bank fraud or tax fraud. By the way, that's more of a legit opinion. And they say, well, and the reason why they'll release that, they'll release it at the same time we learn that Trump really won the election. Jesus. Imagine living in a world so utterly made up. Imagine not at all grounding your opinions in facts or reality. Because that's what they do. These guys just make shit up. That's what they do. Like, none of what they're saying is true, except that Trump might go down part. That part might be true. They said, and he said, bank fraud or tax fraud, throw insurance fraud in there. This is probably exactly what they're looking at. And I love the argument, too. He said something like, show me the man and I'll show you the crime or something. In other words, like, eh, who hasn't done some crimes every now and then? You know what I'm saying? It is what it is. Sun goes up, sun goes down, tide goes in, tide goes out. A guy commits a crime. You know what I'm saying? No, Roger, I don't. That's how you think, because that's probably what you do. Hilarious. Um, they say, oh, they're, they're allowed to look through his business record of 40 years. That's not fair. Of course it's fair. And by the way, they do have probable cause. Of course they have probable cause. How many times have we gone through this? There's a number of things that merit further investigation when it comes to the Trumps. Like, for example, Trump massively undervalues all of his assets when it comes time to pay taxes. And he overvalues his assets when he wants to sell something. And so that's a clear sign of fraud. You know, there were plenty of examples of um, the way that his father shuffled money to Trump and his siblings. At the very least, unethical and sketchy, but it's possibly also completely illegal in how they did it. I told you guys, you couldn't be in real estate in New York City in the 80s without having mafia connections. In fact, Trump's top lawyer was a mafia lawyer. He was the main guy that the mafia went to. I think his name was Roy Cohn or something like that. Um, you're out of your mind if you think he, he wasn't involved in crimes. There's uh, the, the new question that came out that I learned about recently is every single year, he's got a number of golf courses and properties. Every year, every one of them loses a massive amount of money. How is it possible that that's the case, but they stay in business? Well, the speculation is it's not really about golf. That really could be a money laundering operation or something else. Um, there were allegations of money laundering in a Panama property that he had. The list goes on and on. I mean, the guy's definitely a career criminal. I mean, the businesses he actually tried that were real businesses, he went bankrupt six times. He couldn't even make a fucking casino profitable. And in a casino, they come and hand you the money. So, I mean, don't be surprised if he goes down and he goes down because of the investigation in New York. Um, Federally, it was a little bit of a different story, because anytime there's a Republican president, he'd probably pardon him. But if it's, he goes after some state crime, that's a different story. So we'll see. But there was a mix of, like, sober commentary there mixed with insane QAnon garbage, like the stuff in Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Michigan. I mean, imagine believing at this late date there's, like, still hope for Trump to come back. It's just the silliest thing I've ever heard. All right, next.
wait, let me find the numbers for Israel and Hamas. Did I not? God. Hold on, let me find it. Let me find the tweet. Let me find the tweet. And there it is, okay. A new poll came out, and uh, this is from Harris. I don't know who they teamed up with, but it's a Harris poll. Let me show you the new situation for Israel. It's not looking good for them. Quote, who is more responsible for the violence in the Mideast, Israel or Hamas? Now, by the way, the framing of that, I think, is biased. It should have been Israel or Palestinians, but they didn't. They put Israel or Hamas, which up front sort of biases it against the Palestinians because they're just all being viewed as like Hamas. So look at this. Among everybody, 60% blames Hamas, 40% blames Israel. Now, my guess is if you change Hamas to just Palestinians, maybe that becomes like 50-50, which, again, would be a big blow against Israel because of all the propaganda, pro-Israel propaganda here. And even with that propaganda, it's not landing anymore. But look at this. Ages 18 to 34, 60% blame Israel, 40% blame Hamas. Even with the biased framing, Israel is blamed more than Hamas. 35 to 49, 51% blame Israel, 49% blame Hamas. So 49 and under, people are blaming Israel over Hamas. The propaganda is not working anymore. The only group where the propaganda is still landing is the older folks. You don't see this on the screen there, but 50 to 64-year-olds, 72% blame Hamas, 28% blame Israel, and 65 and older, 76% blame Hamas, and 24% blame Israel. In other words, the generations that were, you know, more doctrinaire, more authoritarian, more um, followers in, of doing what they told they were supposed to do, they're like, oh, yeah, no, totally Hamas, because I see that the news always says that 24-7, so I'm on their side. Uh, so they fall for the propaganda more. But anyway, this is, this is incredible. So this poll was done May 20th, and um, it says a lot. This says a lot. I think that when you're – when your grip on the narrative is slipping this much, even with endless propaganda on your side. It's not going to be much longer until this really is like 60% pro-Palestinian, 40% pro-Israel. And, you know, it's weird because you look at the numbers internationally and you see that basically everybody else has gotten past the bogus narratives. You know, like international law is crystal clear. Israel is violating international law, doing illegal occupation and and illegal settlements, and they're expanding them. And um, people are seeing what's happening. They see who the occupying power is. They see that they're really not interested in peace. Israel is not interested in peace. They're not interested in a two-state solution. They're not interested in a democratic one-state solution. They're not interested in any of that. And so the rest of the world sees through it, and the younger people in America see through it. The only people who don't see through it are the entire U.S. establishment and um, the older folks in America. So, But, I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of positives to take away from this. Again, even the fact that they frame this as Hamas or Israel, who's to blame? If they put Palestinians or Israel, we might already be at 50-50 for the entire country. So 
keep telling the truth, keep spreading the reality of what's happening, and eventually I think the truth will win out. All right, next. Oh, see, these I didn't put in order, but I think that's okay. It's no big deal. Oh, God, should I do a UFO one for you guys? I might do a UFO one for you guys. Oh, no, wait. Oh, let me do the Bernie one. The Bernie one is the best one. All right, number this one for you. That... Okay, here we go. One of the things that has been the most frustrating watching the media in the Biden era, mainstream media, is that um, they're really trying to push out this narrative that Joe Biden is FDR, that Joe Biden is a hardcore lefty, a social Democrat, and he's bringing real change and fighting for it tooth and nail. You guys know if you watch this show, nothing could be further from the truth. When you look at the details of what's happening behind the scenes, the specifics, he's um, watering down the already watered down plans and then not fighting for it. I mean, that's, that's the gist of it. Um, the best thing stuff he did came like in the first day with the executive orders that reversed Trump's worst executive orders. Um, even the COVID relief package, which was okay, nothing in there is permanent, nothing in there is recurring. It's all one shot of adrenaline. The $1,400 check should have been $2,000 check. We can go on and on with the criticism. $15 minimum wage wasn't in there. It was an okay piece of legislation, but it could have been a hell of a lot better. And ever since then, we've done Dickie McGee's act. So the media is pushing this bogus narrative aggressively. Here's an MSNBC host, Ari Melber, making this case. Let's watch, and then I'll rip it apart. Is President Biden the new Bernie? He's unveiled a $6 trillion set of budget proposals, lifting the middle class and expanding social safety nets. He also does want to raise funds by hitting corporations and the super wealthy. These sweeping plans would bring spending to basically the highest levels adjusted over the past 50 years. This shows Biden's transformation and how he's governing. Many see here progress and an attempt to consolidate the Democratic Party while on domestic policy going full Bernie after coming into an office with a reputation as more of an incremental moderate. More cops, more prisons, more physical protection for the people. We have predators on our streets. You must take back the streets. Congress gives President Bush what he wants in the showdown with Saddam Hussein by a vote of 77 to 23. We say, yes, Mr. President, you have that power to go to war. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. He meant Medicare and Medicaid. He meant Iraq. He meant clean up the streets with that tough and controversial crime bill. Now, that was then, in Joe Biden's long Senate career. And then we know recently that party that he's in seemed to sort of split two presidential cycles in a row between the more establishment centrist choice and a progressive one. First it was Clinton versus Sanders, and then it was Biden versus Sanders. 
At this time a year ago, Sanders had not yet endorsed Biden, and they've been engaging in months of respectful but vigorous policy debate. Joe has voted for terrible trade agreements. I don't know that there's any trade agreement that the senator would ever think made any sense. Joe and I have a fundamental disagreement here. Jay Shavin noticed. <laughs> Obviously, the Paris Accord is, is useful, but it doesn't go anywhere. If you laugh at Joe, then you're missing the point. You're this is an existential crisis. About a year later, Biden's governing from the core and base of the Democratic Party, the progressive base, pushing the liberal plans I just mentioned, spending that outstrips anything from the early days of the Obama-Biden administration, pushing higher taxes on the wealthy and on corporations, and Joe Biden taking sides with labor more than he did in past decades or than past Democratic presidents. He's pushing a new multi-trillion dollar plan with major planks for jobs, racial justice, and addressing climate change. Now, whether it's correlation or causation, Biden at times can sound a bit like the new Bernie. So I genuinely don't know if um, Ari Melber just isn't that bright, and so he's just wrong about all this, or if he knows he's pushing a bogus narrative. I don't know which it is. Neither one of those possibilities are good for Ari Melber or MSNBC. So let's dive into this. The basic question is, is President Biden the new Bernie? The evidence cited as to how he is the new Bernie is very simple. They say, look, he wants to raise taxes. He wants to do something on climate change. And when they say raise taxes, they mean on the wealthy. He wants to create jobs uh, through an infrastructure bill. And so, and he, you know, they, they didn't say this, but you could throw in there to help boost their argument. Look at the COVID relief package. It was a much bigger package than, okay, that's, sorry, I'm a child and I hear sexual innuendo and everything. It's a much bigger spending bill than, for example, in the Obama era when they did the stimulus package and they got, you know, what was it, $787 billion? And so the price tag of Biden's COVID relief package was, I believe, $1.9 trillion. And so that's another argument where you could say, see, much further left, this is obviously better, so on and so forth. Now, here's the part where, again, I don't know if he's being purposefully dense and obtuse or if he knows he's bullshitting, but he's saying it anyway. Guys, every single thing that put aside the COVID relief package, you have to account for like money back then in 09 was worth a lot less than it is now. And also Trump just did over a $2 trillion COVID relief package, albeit a worse one because a lot of that, more of that was corporate welfare. But Trump did a over $2 trillion COVID relief package. Does that make him the next FDR? Does that make him like Bernie? No, of course not. That's not a good metric. Also, we backed off of a lot of the better things that were supposed to be in there. Instead of $2,000 checks, they did $1,400 checks. So no, I don't think that the COVID relief thing is enough to say he's Bernie or he's like FDR. But everything that he cited as evidence for him being like Bernie, not only is he not going to get these things, he knows he's not going to get these things, and he's not even trying to get these things. So raising taxes on the rich, creating jobs through an infrastructure plan, even like the, the family aspect of the plan, like paid maternity leave and stuff like that, all those are good policies. But he's not going to get them. He's not even trying to get them. Now, why do I say that? Because you need 60 votes to get this through regular order. There are nowhere near 60 votes. You need 51 to get it through reconciliation. They don't have the 51, and they're not even trying. And, in fact, they announced the other day we're not going to try anything through reconciliation until the earliest August. 
That's four months of doing nothing. So in other words, Biden goes out there and he says, yeah, I want to raise tax on the wealthy. Yeah, I want to create jobs through this amazing infrastructure bill. He goes out there and argues this while knowing he knows, as a matter of fact, I'm not going to get this. I'm not even going to try to get this. I'm just messaging. That's it. Now, if Ari Melber isn't an idiot, he knows that that's what's happening. He knows Biden's not going to get it. He knows he's not even going to try to get it. He knows that he's just messaging. So it's very possible Ari Melber knows this. And he's just making the argument, even though he knows it's bullshit. But it's also possible that he's not that bright, and he falls for all the head fakes and all the kabuki theater of politics, because that is all this is. It's kabuki theater. If you're pushing for something knowing you're not going to get it, I'm not going to give you credit for that. You have to want it, push for it, and come up with a strategy to actually get it implemented. He doesn't have a strategy. In fact, it's the opposite. His, the whole point is, I know I'm not going to get this, so I'm going to push for it. So that's the first point. That's probably the most important part of the argument. Now, beyond that, even of the things that, they, that Biden says he nominally wants, what does he not want? He doesn't want Medicare for all. He doesn't even want a public option. He doesn't even want to lower the Medicare age to 60. It wasn't in the budget when he said originally it would be. He doesn't want um, to negotiate for lower drug prices with Big Pharma. Again, when he originally said he did. He doesn't want student loan debt relief. He didn't fight for the $15 minimum wage, so obviously that's not a top priority of his. He doesn't even want to legalize marijuana, which he could do through an executive order. So, in other words, the policies that truly make up the core of Bernie, Biden is for none of those policies, none of them. The only one you can give him half credit for is if he actually ends the war in Afghanistan. It's yet to be seen if he really will do that. It's possible he says he's going to end it, but he leaves behind thousands of, of, you know, contractors and basically troops there continuing our occupation, even though on paper we're, we're withdrawn. So if he does that, no credit. But if he does get everybody out, credit. We'll just be 50-50 on that right now. Give him half credit and we'll see what happens because he says he wants to get out. But like everything else, Biden is not for any of the Bernie ideas. And I just listed him for you. He's not for Medicare for all, not even for a public option, not for lowering the Medicare rates to 60, not for negotiating lower drug prices, not for student loan debt relief, not for $15 minimum wage not for legalizing marijuana. So he's nowhere near Bernie at all. So in other words, all that's left is what he's already done, which is just standard, like centrist democratic stuff, which is better than Trump, but that's not saying much. So standard centrist Democrat stuff. And then you saw his record, his old record that they showed right there. He was a hardcore drug warrior. He was tough on crime. He uh, talked about freezing federal spending, including Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. He, um, he was for Iraq. He was for the Patriot Act. I mean, that's the real Joe Biden. The real Joe Biden is formerly a hardcore right-wing Democrat. If you're being kind, you could say currently more of a centrist Democrat. But either way, corporate is through and through, and nowhere near Bernie Sanders, nowhere near FDR. So why are they doing this? Guys, you know, you want to know my new theory on this? My new theory is, it takes an idiot not to see the populist fervor bubbling in this country. There's, among the actual people, the right-wing base voters are more populist. The left-wing base voters are more populist. I'm saying this because of the polls. The polls are clear. People want to end the wars. People want the government to get involved in the economy and, and cut people checks and give us a, a living wage and end the corruption. The list goes on and on in the ways that the people are actually populist. So I totally forgot my point and where I was going with that. Um, oh, I got it. So 
the media class and the politicians know they need to give, they need to make concessions to the bases because people are really fucking angry. And so what's the trick that they've latched onto? What if we tell the left-wing base that they're winning and that they're relevant and that they matter and that they're the future and that they're getting their way now even though they're not getting their way now? And it's been working. So, for example, the Justice Democrats' Twitter account was tweeting out this glowing New Yorker profile about them. I don't, it's, it's amazing to me that how can you do a victory lap when all the things that we care about have not been implemented? There is no Medicare for all. There is no elimination of student loan debt. There is no uh, legalized marijuana. There is no freeing the nonviolent drug offenders. Like, the list goes on and on. We didn't get almost anything of what we wanted, and Justice Democrats are taking a victory lap and tweeting out a glowing profile from corporate media, from New, the New Yorker. Why are you doing that? You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying, oh, Biden has exceeded expectations. How? He hasn't done any of the things that we believe in. How? So now you see all these articles. Biden's the new FDR. Biden is just like Bernie. The ascendant left is taking over. So again, why are they doing this? It's basically like saying, what if we tell them they've won even though they didn't win? Honestly, that's working to pacify the left. It is. It's working to make the left go, yeah, we're really doing well. I guess we could take our foot off the gas pedal a little bit because we're already notching victories. And here we are. So that's exactly what's happening. It's conceding without conceding. It's conceding in name, conceding in symbolism, conceding in optics, without conceding anything policy-wise. That's the new trick. God, it's working so well, it's driving me crazy. You know, imagine doing a victory lap before you get any of the things that you really believe in in your heart of hearts. Which, you know, gets to the point of maybe the people don't believe in it in their heart of hearts as much as I hope they do or as much as I do and as much as you do. But, yeah, it's, man, it makes me sad. It really does. No, he's not FDR. No, he's not Biden. The left is ascendant in terms of the numbers we have among the people, but that has not translated into policy. So now we have to translate that into policy and not get pacified by some tepid nominal credit that isn't real. That sounded weird. Some tepid nominal credit that isn't real. So actually earn the credit instead of falling for these head fakes and these head pats. Like, yo, yeah, you guys are really in control here. You guys are really getting what you want. No, we're not. Don't take your foot off the gas pedal. Don't fall for this nonsense. Don't all of a sudden stop caring about what you're supposed to believe in because the media is telling you you're doing well even though you're not. It's some participation trophy-like bullshit. That's what it seems like to me. I'll stroke your ego as long as we don't actually get the things that you say you want. That's where we are. So no, Biden is nothing. Nothing like Bernie. Nothing like FDR. And don't you dare fall for this absolute garbage. Okay. Next. All right, y'all. So we have um, a former Pentagon official went on CNN and basically said, UFOs are real. Barack Obama went on one of the late night shows and said, yeah, there's plenty of stuff in the air that we don't know what the hell it is. And there's 
countless examples of that. There's been, you know, video released from the Navy, and they've been like, yeah, we see this thing moving not like any aircraft we've ever seen before ever move, and we don't know what the hell's going on. So CNN does this segment basically trying to confirm, like, UFOs are real. Here's that conversation. The U.S. government is set to release an unclassified report on UFOs maybe as early as next week. What was once considered a joke is now seen by a lot of people as a genuine national security issue. Ex-government officials are increasingly outspoken about it. Even former President Barack Obama conceded this month there are things that they simply cannot explain. What is true, uh, and I'm, I'm actually being serious here, is, is that um, there are... Uh, there's footage and records of objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. Our next guest is the former director of the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program at the Pentagon, and here's what he said on 60 Minutes a few weeks ago. Imagine a technology that can do six to 700 G-forces, that can fly at 13,000 miles an hour, that uh, it can evade radar, and that can fly through air and water and possibly space, and oh, by the way, has no obvious signs of propulsion, no wings, no control surfaces, and yet still can defy the natural effects of Earth's gravity. That's precisely what we're seeing. And Luis Elizondo joins us now. Lou, great to have you here. Um, I don't think there's any question anymore. These are real. I mean, Navy pilots are on the record with what they've seen flying around. Um, military videos have caught images of these UFOs. What do you think this report, maybe as early as next week, is going to say? Well, I hope the report provides Congress what it asked for and, frankly, what it deserves, and that is a, a current assessment of the situation. Um, my only fear is that 180 days is really not a sufficient uh, enough time to to provide a comprehensive report. I, when I was my when I was working in the Pentagon, uh, we did this for for nearly a decade, and there's a lot of information to comb through. And again, my my fear is that 180 days is simply not going to be long enough to provide that comprehensive report to Congress that it asked for. So your expectation is this won't be comprehensive then? Well, I think it's going to be a start. My hope is that this is going to serve as an interim report, and, and frankly, I hope that there's a, a more long-term enduring capability that's established within the government, perhaps a whole-of-government approach, to, to look at this, this issue. This issue is, is not a recent issue. It's, it's been going on for, for many, many years, if not decades, and, uh, and it's finally coming to the point where the U.S. government, really, it's, it's reached this critical mass where we just can't simply deny it anymore. And so, Lou, when you were the director of this special program at the Pentagon, what information did you see that the rest of us don't know about? Sure. Well, I think what's important here is we're talking about eyewitness testimony from trained observers. These are individuals we have spent millions of dollars training uh, for them to recognize the silhouette of a F-16 versus an SU-22 versus a MiG-25, in some cases from 25 miles away. And what they're reporting to us are really uh, extraordinary uh, vehicles doing extraordinary things, and furthermore, it's backed up by electro-optical data, such as gun camera footage, and further backed up by radar. So, in essence, you have three distinct pieces, uh, or if you will, collection uh, uh, sources that are all providing the same information at the same time, 
at the same place under the same circumstances, uh, and all and all really validating what the pilots are seeing. And so, so it's very compelling. And, and at this point, we know it's real. You know, uh, you, you make an interesting point. At this point, that you know it's real. Uh, not too long ago, as I mentioned, this would have been a joke. But now you've got a president, former president, acknowledging this. What changed that now we have former President Obama saying, "Serious now." There are things that we cannot explain. Yeah, well, and it's not former, just former President Obama. We have former Director of National Intelligence Ratcliffe. We have former Director of CIA John Brennan, former Director of CIA Woolsey. All of them have come forward, along with some of our uh, elected officials in Congress who have stepped forward. All have received classified briefings on the topic, and, and what they're being provided is extremely compelling. I, I think, again, we are well beyond reasonable doubt at this point. So the real question is, what exactly are we dealing with? Are we dealing with some sort of foreign adversarial technology, or are we really dealing with something that is, that's, that's a paradigm moment for, for our species and dealing with something completely different? And what do you think it is? I mean, when you say that something can travel at 13,000 you know, miles per hour, you don't see any form of propulsion, it can go up and down, it defies the laws of technology and gravity as we know it, what do you think it is? Well, uh, to be completely honest, it's, it's too early for, for us to make any type of conclusion right now. I think we're still in the, in the phase of data collecting uh, and, and analyzing. I think uh, all options have to remain on the table until, frankly, they're no longer on the table. And I, I just want to be very careful offering my particular opinion right now because, frankly, we just don't have enough data to make uh, any type of logical conclusion yet. Well, it certainly is fascinating, and again, we are awaiting this unclassified report. Uh, we will all read it when it comes out. Luis Elizondo, thanks so much for your expertise and time, sir. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, this is CNN casually confirming, like, oh, by the way, UFOs were completely real. <laughs> that was way too casual a segment for, like, the bomb that they dropped on everybody here. So, I mean... Listen, I, I'm reminded of when I was in college, in one of my classes, we had to do some sort of report, some sort of speech that you give to the class, some presentation. And naturally, of course, you guys are not going to be surprised to know that I, I did a, a Chomsky speech thing. And I actually think the thing was you're supposed to take a speech that already exists or something and present it. It was something along those lines. Anyway, one of the things that one of the students did, one of the other people did, is uh, they went up there, did a slideshow of, like, all these different um, UFO sightings, and the argument that he made was, like, listen, I'm not saying that any of these ones in particular are real. Uh, in fact, I think maybe most of them are, are made up. They're fake. They're some, you know, high-level video editor having some fun, playing a joke on people, whatever. But the point he made was, there's been tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of UFO sightings over the years. One of them. One of them. Isn't faked? Isn't a trick? Isn't a practical joke? Isn't explainable through natural phenomena? Phenomenon? Phenomena? Whatever. Doesn't matter then UFOs are real. So out of like 100,000, 200,000, whatever it is, fill in the blank. Let's go on the low end, 40,000 UFO sightings. If just one of them is real, then UFOs are real. 
Now, I remember hearing that and thinking, hmm, that's actually not a bad point. That's not a bad point. Now, this is the part where I have the unsavory, probably unpopular opinion. I don't know what to do with that information. You know what I mean? Like, some people get really obsessed with this and go down the rabbit hole and are, like, all in on it. I don't understand that inclination. Because the fact of the matter is this. What you just heard in this segment is the extent of what we know. Like, yes, there are these unidentified flying objects that move in a way that seem to don't coincide with the laws of nature. Can I explain what it is? Do I know what it is? Do I have a theory as to what it is? No, I have no idea. I have none, absolutely none, zero. It's an unidentified flying object. And so that's pretty much where it stops for me. You know, I guess, I guess I'm just agnostic on the rest. I wouldn't immediately take the giant leap of like, these are extraterrestrials who found a way here and who are spying on us or whatever, keeping tabs on us. It's possible, but there's other things that are possible as well that are not as sexy explanations, you know? So I just don't know. I mean, that's my answer. And I know it's, I know it's um, completely unsatisfying. I know that um, you guys want to hear some sort of edgy, brilliant take, but I don't have an edgy, brilliant take. Um, I just have complete humbleness in the face of the unknown. And so the other point is, I thought this during the Trump era. I thought there's no way UFOs were real because if they were, Trump would have like tweeted it out at 4 a.m. while he was shitting for the whole world to hear. You know, like, so talk to the Pentagon today. Turns out aliens are real. Totally crazy. MAGA. And he didn't do that. So I was like, okay, UFOs are probably not real. But, you know, this is definitely compelling evidence in the other direction. But again, the extent of my knowledge is unidentified flying objects are real, not unidentified flying objects are real, and here's what they are, and if you disagree, you're crazy. No, I don't know what they are. They're unidentified flying objects. So, yeah, I don't know, but it definitely is creepy, isn't it? Like, let me put it this way. There definitely is life somewhere else in the universe because the universe is just too big for there not to be life elsewhere. But, I mean, I just don't know if they are sufficiently... um, sufficiently evolved enough to be able to create this new kind of technology that would defy all the laws of physics and nature and would work in the way that they say it's working. And like, wouldn't, if they're anything like us, they would have already killed us all. So that, that's another thing is like, how can it be that at this late date with all these sightings, there hasn't really been a single example of human-to-human or human-to-alien contact and conversation and meeting up and, you know, it's like, why is it always something that's so distant? Why is it always something that's so in and out and quick? Why is it, and why is it always recorded on some grainy-ass fucking video? You know, that's the other thing, all the Navy shit, and they're like, look, we see it, and it's all black and white and grainy, and you can barely see it, and it's like, that's always weird to me, too. Like, we have HD cameras fucking everywhere, and nobody's got some HD shit. I say that, but then you guys will probably send me 40 HD things. But that's the thing. Like, again, you don't know which ones are faked and which ones are real and all that stuff, and I don't care enough to do the research to figure out which ones are real and and faked and whatever. But anyway, listen, all I'm saying is I'm humble. I don't know what the fuck it is. I believe that UFOs are real, but I don't have a theory as to what the UFOs are. 
Um, and I think everybody just immediately goes to that sexiest explanation of, like, extraterrestrials, aliens, doing something with us, fucking with us, playing with us, and that is it. And I don't know. I just don't know. It's possible, but I don't know what it is. But, yeah, CNN is just confirming here, like, UFOs are real. And they did it so nonchalantly, I was kind of amazed by it. Okay, next. So it didn't take long at all for Fox News to flip from Russia love under Trump to Russia hatred now that Biden is president. Take a look. Right. So let's fast forward to Russia. Yesterday on June 16th, it was announced there'll be a summit in Switzerland, Vladimir Putin and President Biden, despite the fact that they were completing the pipeline on Nord Stream 2. We're no longer stopping that. That's going to go bypass Ukraine and go right through Western Europe. So we militarily protect them from Russia, but they are now glued to Russia thanks to oil and gas, despite the fact that the hack that destroyed our uh, East Coast oil flow, uh, came from within their borders, despite the fact that they are battling us with the Arctic, bullying us out of the Arctic, we still look to meet. Do we have any standards? You know, you just gave an excellent summary of what's going on. Let me also add to that, Brian, uh, that we have the INF Treaty, which uh, the Biden administration automatically renewed when they came in. At the end of the Trump administration, through Marshall Billingsley, we were trying to get the Chinese on board. We were trying to renegotiate that treaty and not just give it a blanket renewal for five years. Um, and instead, that's what the Biden administration did, give them, gave them another pass uh, on a treaty that they were probably violating. You know, the Biden administration keeps saying that they want predictability and stability in the relationship with Russia. I, I, I don't know what that means from a foreign policy perspective. When we saw that Russia may be amassing troops uh, again in Ukraine, uh, Biden had two warships turn around that were headed towards the Black Sea. So uh, all I see is concession after concession after concession to the Russians. I don't know what Putin has done to deserve uh, this meeting, nor do I understand what the Biden administration wants out of Russia, out of Putin, other than just to sort of get them out of their hair and get them off the world stage, which, you know, Putin is never going to agree to. So uh, I'd like to understand from the Biden administration what in the world they hope to get out of this. They conceded on every major issue that they could with Russia leading up to this event so that it's going to be, I guess, low-key. This is rich. This is rich. So just so you understand, everybody is a giant hypocrite. Everybody. That's what this story tells me. So under Trump, his policies were very anti-Russia, while his commentary was very pro-Russia. And of course, idiot Democrats looked at that and said, Donald Trump is Vladimir Putin's puppet. What does Russia have on Trump? Why, are they, why is Trump giving them everything they want? He wasn't. Trump was doing the opposite. Trump didn't approve the pipeline. Trump was arming Ukrainian rebels who were fighting Russia. Trump was doing a NATO buildup on Russia's border. Uh, there, the list goes on and on in terms of how hawkish and standoffish Trump was with the Russian government. Now, I didn't agree with Trump. I don't like those hawkish policies. I don't like raising tensions with another nuclear armed power. So I was very critical of Trump on the policy issues. But Republicans were defending Trump all day long on that. 
Well, now, here's Biden. Biden is acting very... He, he's pushing, he is pushing for peace with Russia. He's not being standoffish. He's not raising tensions. He approved the Nord, uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. He, um, you know, he's not escalating tensions with Russia claiming parts of the Arctic for oil and gas. He hopped back in the nuclear treaty, which Trump pulled us out of. I agree on, when it comes to the policy with Biden. Now, here's the Fox and Friends morons, or, or Brian Kilmeade, and they are now massively anti-Russia when under Trump, they were pro-Russia. So under Trump, they defended Trump's rhetoric when Trump's rhetoric was like, hey, it's good to get along with Russia. Why wouldn't we want to get along with another big power? It's amazing. It's the right thing to get along with another big power. They would defend Trump, and they would defend, you know, a buddy-buddy relationship and working together. They defended that rhetoric. That was the position they took. Now Biden is actually trying to get along and doing buddy-buddy rhetoric and working with them, and all of a sudden now they flip, and they're, they're like, you should, you should be really hawkish. That's what you should be. Everybody is a giant hypocrite. Trump was incredibly hawkish on Russia. Biden is the opposite of hawkish on Russia. The Republicans loved it when Trump's rhetoric was soft on Russia. And they now hate it when Biden's actions are actually soft on Russia. So our political debate in this country is so warped. Every aspect of it is so warped. Everybody views stuff through partisan blinders. Nobody has an actual position on this stuff. You know, everybody just plays for their team. And now you have conservative media absolutely despising Biden for doing the things that had Trump done them, they would have cheered it all day long. So that's the bottom line. You know, I think Biden's right on every single one of these policies. I wouldn't sanction over a pipeline. I wouldn't battle um, Russia in the Arctic. I wouldn't, I wouldn't continue to stay out of that nuclear treaty. I would hop back in that nuclear treaty. So it's nothing but good stuff from Biden. And, of course, Fox News is against it. And they went back to being hawkish on Russia. So it's annoying and it's a damn shame. All right, guys, let me take a quick break. When we come back, I got some awesome stuff to end the show for you. Stay right there.
Alright, y'all. I'm back up in this bitch. Okay, uh, let's finish up the show with two amazing stories. Let's go to the psycho Janine Pirro. Judge Janine, Judge Janine Pirro is one of the craziest Fox News hosts, and that says quite a bit because almost all of them are insane. Um, so she is going to talk about her issue or issues with President Biden's new budget proposal. And you couldn't make this stuff up if you tried. If I were to tell you that she said this, you would think I'm strawmanning her. I'm not. Look at what her biggest issues are. It's good to have you on this Friday. Hey, what do you make of the fact that Joe Biden, you know, he's going to unveil a $6 trillion budget today, um, spending a lot of money that we don't have, and it's going to cost a lot going forward for future generations. But he says we really need it. We've got to continue to pull ourselves out of the pandemic and so much more. What do you say to If the president was watching and listening to you, what would you say? Well, I say, are you stupid? I mean, first of all, we're on the heels of inflation, number one. Number two, there's so much money into the economy right now that people don't want to go to work because Joe Biden is giving them so much money that they'd rather stay home than go to work. But what has really got my goat here is we're talking about $400 billion in health care, okay, and all of the infrastructure that he talks about, which is really a social uh, services safety net. So her idea of arguing against the bill is to cite the good parts of the bill as if they're bad. By the way, this shows how little they know about politics, because the fact of the matter is Joe Biden's not going to get any of this through because you need 60 votes for regular order. They're nowhere near that. And if you don't do regular order, you can do reconciliation with 51 votes. And we heard the other day that Democrats are giving up until the earliest August when it comes to any new reconciliation packages. So this whole conversation is moot anyway. So she doesn't even understand that they're talking about these things, but they're not really pushing for them and trying to get them. So that's the first point. They don't know about politics. But look at her arguments. So it says, oh, spending this much money is bad because we're on the heels of inflation. Inflation was 4%. We had deflation last year. So having the inflation of 4% means we're exactly where we were supposed to be if we didn't have the deflation last year. So the inflation point is ridiculous. Uh, people don't want to work because they're getting so much money. The unemployment rate was 6%, and then it ticked up to 6.1%. Does that sound like people don't want to work because they're getting so much money? Is that what that sounds like to you? And by the way, even if that was the case, I would support it. You want to know why? Because now people are rethinking what they actually want to do with their lives. And Janine Pirro would rather force you back into a low-wage job that you hate and tell you to shut the fuck up and, and do it. Again, they're making my life so easy because they make the worst possible arguments for their position. Um, then she says her biggest issue with it is a $400 billion in health care. Imagine your biggest issue being $400 billion in health care. The, the grossest part of this budget is that there's money for health care in the middle of a pandemic. Ridiculous and gross. 
says that? Who believes that? Janine Pirro does. And then she attacks, quote, infrastructure, which is really a social services safety net. I like infrastructure and I like safety nets. Wonderful. She, I mean, how quickly they flip. Because the fact of the matter is, Trump said he was for $2,000 checks. Trump did over $2 trillion COVID package. Nobody made a peep about inflation or big spending or people getting so much money. So they're just partisan hacks. And they went right back to this hardcore Ayn Rand style, you know, laissez-faire capitalism, small government libertarian style arguments when previously they were pretending like they were somewhat populist under Trump because Trump was in favor of bigger spending. So they're complete hacks. They're all total hacks. This is such a great example of it. But listen, if she wants to make these sorts of arguments, it makes my life so much easier because they're the worst arguments I've ever heard. Complaining about inflation when inflation is not a major issue saying people don't want to work because they're getting so much money. Oh, what a terrible, what a terrible thing that regular people are getting money. <laughs> Disgusting. Complaining about $400 billion in health care and complaining about infrastructure and the social safety net. I mean, I view those things on their face um, as good. And she brings them up and is like, ugh, gross. Okay, well, I'm going to win that argument 10 out of 10 times with the broader public. Because unless you're already totally brainwashed and have totally drunk the right-wing Kool-Aid, you're going to hear those things and say, that seems like it'll help me. I like it. All right. Final story of the day, y'all. General Jack Keane is a uh, Fox News contributor, and he spoke to Maria Bartiromo. He used the Israel-Palestine crisis in order to push for war with Iran, or at the very least raising tensions with Iran. Take a look at this, and then I'll tell you a little more about this character. Joining me right now is Fox News Senior Strategic Analyst General Jack Keane. He is also a retired four-star Army general and a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient the highest civilian honor. The Memorial Day weekend, sir, we thank you for your service. General, it's good to see you. It's great to see you, Maria. So what is your take on all of this? The ceasefire in place, does it last? What are your thoughts about all of the money sent to the Palestinian Authority? Have we changed course entirely in the Middle East? Well, we're beginning to, and I said that when the Biden administration came in, while it looked like they were going to move in the right direction of China, wasn't sure about Russia, but I, I was convinced that they had a potential for a strategic blunder in the Middle East, and, and that is unfolding right before our eyes, because they're failing to recognize something that the director, former Director Radcliffe mentioned. Iran is the chief sponsor of the proxy wars that have taken place in the Middle East and of terrorism in the Middle East. So the three major organizations that were firing on Israel just recently for those 11 days, the Hezbollah, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and Hamas, who did most of it, all of them are work for the Ayatollah in Iran. He sponsors them. And believe me, the attack by Hamas would not have happened if Iran did not okay it, Maria, 
And that is the link that has to be established. The other problem we have there is the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank under Mahmoud Abbas for 16 years has rejected all the concessions that Israel has wanted to make. That is why the Arab nations walked away from the Palestinians. It's not that they don't care about the suffering there. It's not that they don't want the situation resolved with Israel, but it's a recognition that they have much more in common with Israel in confronting Iran, who's the major destabilizer in the region, than they have with the Palestinians in trying to resolve what appears to be an intractable situation with terrorists running Hamas in Gaza and corrupt leadership, Mahmoud Abbas, taking the donor money in the Palestinian Authority and making no progress. So the fact that we're not dealing with Iran is a major flaw by this administration. They should have been called out immediately. We should have got up from our chairs in Vienna where the deal is being negotiated, the nuclear deal, where we're attempting to revisit the original 2015 nuclear deal that so many of us feel is fundamentally flawed. We should have stopped those negotiations immediately because Iran was behind the attack on Israel. And until that attack was ended by Hamas, there's going to be no discussions. But and you just made an unbelievable point that they haven't even brought the word Iran up in any of the discussions with the American people about what has taken place for those 11 days and also for what has taken place right now with Secretary Blinken in the Middle East. I can tell you this, that Prime Minister Netanyahu and his people around him gave Secretary Blinken an earful about Iran's complicit behavior here. And we have got to stop accommodating them and appeasing them because it has got us nowhere. Well, they're, they're not holding Iran accountable. They're not holding China accountable. I want to take a short break. Yeah, they're not holding Iran or China, China accountable. They should totally hold them accountable. And by that I mean they should, what, how? We already have sanctions out the wazoo on these countries, or at least on Iran. China's a slightly different scenario because they hold a lot of our debt and we're massive trading partners with them. What do you want them to do? What do you want them to do? You want to stand up to, to Iran or China? Be very clear. Be very specific. What do you want to do? At the very least, you want to increase tensions. But it sounds like you're flirting with some sort of military confrontation, at least in the case of Iran. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? Now, listen, that guy, General Jack Keane, who you saw talking there, um, he works for the Institute for the Study of War. Hmm, sounds very official, right? Well, guess what? They are described as a hawkish Washington group favoring a, quote, aggressive foreign policy. They think of themselves as nonpartisan. Really, they're a hawkish Washington group, and they favor an aggressive foreign policy. It is a neocon think tank. You know who funds them? Raytheon, General Dynamics, DynCorp, and other defense contractors. So in other words, this guy who they're presenting as an expert is paid by the defense contractors, and he goes out there and says, oh, yeah, we should be more aggressive. We should be more hawkish. We should hold them accountable. We should maybe push for war. And he's getting paid by the people who profit off of war. And of course, there was nothing in the segment where Maria Bartiromo did full transparency. This guy gets paid by Raytheon and General Dynamics and DynCorp and other defense contractors. Just so you know, so he's biased in favor of, hey, we should be aggressive. We should, you know, escalate. We should raise tensions. We should maybe do war. He's biased in that direction. They don't say a word about it. Maria Bartiromo doesn't say a word about it. 
this is how corrupt, this is like the military media industrial complex. That's what this is. By the way, the point they're trying to make also is absurd. Oh, so, so Israel was bombing civilian targets in Gaza, therefore war with Iran. What? Because Iran backs Hamas and funds Hamas. So I don't see the connection between, oh, Israel is bombing civilian targets in Gaza, therefore the U.S. should go to war with Iran or increase tensions with Iran. I don't see that connection, not even a little bit. In his mind, it's just like Israel good because they're our partner, and Israel doesn't like Hamas, and and Hamas is linked to Iran, therefore let's back our partner Israel and increase tensions with Iran or go to war with Iran or whatever. Bottom line is, this dude gets paid to be pro-war. And so he goes out there and does pro-war talking points. He's a complete hack. And uh, last thing we need is another war in the Middle East. That's the absolute last thing we need. It's, you know, plus they're not an actual threat to us. Who are we kidding? What a joke this is. This guy forgot the question, but he knows the answer is more war because he gets paid to say the answer is more war. All right, guys, I'm done, baby. It's great to be back on the show. I'm so happy about that. I'm so excited about that. I love you guys, and I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a good one. Peace.